Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And I'm very happy to welcome Alexander Jaloyan back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, I got to congratulate you, Alexander, on uh, getting your master's thesis submitted. I understand you're still waiting for the final results, but man, that's a, that's a pretty tall mountain to climb. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. Uh, it's very kind of you. Yes, hopefully I've passed everything and I'll have a master's degree soon. So I'll let you know how it goes. So for, for people meeting you for the first time, tell, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, my name is Alexander Jaloyan. I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, California. Um, but recently I've done a lot of work on African development, looking at uh, different countries in Africa, um, kind of the policies that they have tried to implement, um, some of the things that are structurally holding Africa back. Um, so I work for a think tank called the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity. Um, they're based in the UK, but all of our work is on sub-Saharan Africa. And um, basically through that, I've gotten very interested in geopolitics, kind of the things that African countries are dealing with um, and some of the different outside forces um, like the Chinese government and like the America that has our big players down there. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where my area of expertise lies, if you will. Um, I love reading about it. I love the history of the area. I think it's fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. Okay, I have to admit, I kind of have myopia sometimes. I'm I'm really focused on the stuff that's happening in America, and I don't often think outside the box. But I'm looking at an article you wrote for International Policy Digest about China's activity and and their efforts in in Africa. I really had no idea. I I'd heard about. I think you referenced the Belt and Roads Initiative. Uh, yes. Which I knew that they they were investing in infrastructure and of course uh, probably seeking natural resources and so forth. I hadn't realized the degree to which they are manipulating African media markets. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So so China's had a decade long strategy of trying to kind of win friends um, across the world. Mostly that's been done through their Belt and Road Initiative, which was President Xi's big um, project that basically has spent about a trillion dollars now in developing markets. And the whole goal there was to make developing countries um, that are often very close to China. I mean, Africa is not too far away from China's shores, um, economically reliant on China. So they'll go in and they'll give loans to different governments, you know, build infrastructure, things like that. And so they're kind of deepening these ties. And through that, they're able to further their foreign policy goals. So recently, uh, China opened up its first um, overseas military base in 2017. It's in Djibouti, small East African country. There's been a lot of talk to trying to open another one in Equatorial Guinea, which is in West Africa. And so they're kind of using the Belt and Road Initiative to further their influence globally and kind of push their uh, foreign affairs goals forward. Now, the media market thing is I've recently found it very interesting. Um, alongside the Belt and Road Initiative, They've spent a ton of money trying to influence African media markets, um, not just African media markets, but you know pretty much markets across the globe. However, they've found the most success or a high amount of success in African markets, mainly because those countries lack the ability to effectively combat it. Um, the reason why they're trying to do this is, again, to kind of turn the narrative, paint themselves well, um, try to earn friends overseas which helps them with all of their other foreign policy goals. Um, so that's kind of the broad overview, but we can get a much more specific, because um, in the article I talk about what should the U.S. do, kind of how do we address these types of things um, and things of that nature. Talk to me a little bit about the propaganda. How do they do that? I mean, I can't imagine media companies in Africa just saying, ah, sure, come in, you know, air whatever you want to. Um, under, under what auspices are they going in 
and and getting involved with African media? Well, that's Brian. That's a great question. That's one of the really difficult things about trying to study this is it happened in so many diverse ways. That's very hard to track. Um, So one way that it could happen is just through flat out trying to intimidate African journalists to suppress stories that are not favorable to the Chinese. Um, So for whatever reason, uh, a story comes up that the Chinese know uh, is going to be detrimental to the CCP or Xi Jinping's um, relations or things of that nature. And they will make fake social media accounts that will go out and try to, to intimidate those journalists to not you know, spread that story. So that's one avenue. Now, that's very hard to see because often, that oftentimes happens in messages on social media, and it's hard to kind of quantify that. Um, but the total opposite end of that is where, where they will actually go into a country and set up a media outlet that has ties to the Chinese Communist Party, um, and they will begin broadcasting in local languages. So that's been seen in Kenya. Um, in Tanzania, in Nigeria, um, they will actually broadcast their media in Nairobi, in the, in the country's capital, in local languages. Um, and it becomes very difficult to kind of oversee what kind of uh, propaganda they're trying to put out there. So this often takes very many different forms. Um, and that's why I was so happy that Freedom House came out with this, the most comprehensive report um, that has tried to document just how much of this has been able to influence um, different countries. So what are some of the ways that the U.S. could or should get involved in uh, encountering that? Yes. So this is very important. And I think it comes from a idea that you have to, as the U.S., value Africa as a global strategic partner, not just economically, but also in terms of democratic performance. I mean, we all want to see um, Africa thrive. And I'm a big believer that part of thriving is an ability to, you know, have democratic control over government and be able to have free elections and things of that nature. Um, So from that posture, I think what the U.S. needs to do is really capitalize on the U.S.-Africa summit that's coming up this December. Um, Now, this is the first time this has happened since 2014. Basically, a whole bunch of African leaders are going to meet with the Biden administration in D.C. um, in December. During this meeting, I really hope that media influence is a key um, topic of discussion And what I think the U.S. needs to do is urge African governments to make sure that any media outlets with state-owned or with with foreign ties have to adhere to strict transparency requirements so that we can see where the funding is going, what kind of social media accounts they have, who the CCP officials are that have some influence in those organizations in order to kind of oversee whether or not there's some nefarious practices going on here. And in addition to that, I think the U.S. also needs to strongly encourage African governments to set up independent committees within the government to watch out for this type of media influence. Um, it's difficult to do because the U.S. cannot force any of these countries to do these things. But oftentimes these are very bad for our diplomatic partners in the region, and they should want to do so. And perhaps we can help in some ways offering our expertise um, in America. But I think really it's more of us trying to encourage African governments to see the uh, nefarious influence of this and then take action um, on their own. Okay, I don't want to sound cynical, but I have to ask, does the U.S. government play by these same rules in terms of how, you know, it exerts media influence in, in other places around the world? Well, that that is a, a difficult question. I would say that, of course, every country has an incentive to keep um, their perception good globally, you know, so I'm sure the Biden administration wants to be looked at well in Europe and in Africa and things of that nature. I would certainly say that I think it's a different level 
where I would be very surprised if a report came out showing that, you know, um, the American government was funding social media accounts that were trying to blackmail, you know, African journalists to not uh, put stories out. So on the one hand, yes, I can see that argument, but I think it's just such a different scale. Um, and also, I don't think that there's American backed media outlets that are trying to suppress content in Africa. Um, what we're trying to do, hopefully, is support press freedom um, and, and allow African journalists to report on what's happening in their own country. Um, so I, I hope that's a decent answer. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just me kind of wondering. I mean, I, I don't want to see the people in, in these African nations being manipulated one way or the other. Just just kind of it got me wondering if what was sauce for the goose was sauce for the gander as well. What are some yeah. of the ways American can become America can become better invested in Africa? Yeah. Well, this is also a very important part. And this also goes to the U.S.-African summit um, that's coming up in December. If America and the West more generally, Europe as well, um, has better economic ties with Africa, then a lot of these African governments don't need to look to China for help and funding um, and things that are influencing their countries. So one way to do that is to expand the AGOA. It's the African Growth and Opportunity Act. It was passed in 2000, a long time ago by the Bush administration. And this is a big topic of discussion because basically it's tried, it has tried to develop increased trade paths with Africa by giving them preferential um, access to the U.S. market. I think that needs to be expanded drastically. If that happens, Africa will be able to deepen ties with the U.S. And through that, there will also be lots of cultural exchange and hopefully some of the values that we take for granted here um, that have less of a history there, like press freedom and things of that nature, will be able to kind of take root um, and then push back against China's influence. Okay, we got less than a minute left, but I have to ask this: um, the engagement of these outside nations is is it uh, both a help and a hindrance to these African nations? Clearly, if China wants to take advantage, do they want everything for themselves? Is is it good to have some competition in that arena? Yeah, it definitely it is good to have some competition in that arena. I think it gives African countries some ability to choose between strategic partners. But you know, in my personal opinion, I do think the CCP's influence is especially nefarious. Um, I think they're an authoritarian government that has interest in spreading authoritarianism abroad. Um, and so I see that as we're on the moral high ground. And I do think that Africa's path forward would be much um, stronger and better for their people if they were to take the, the freedom-loving route um, that we kind of are privy to over here. Okay, again, we are visiting with Alexander Jaloyan. He is a Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, please uh, go over to Twitter. Um, it's at A Jaloyan, J-E-L-L-O-I-A-N. Um, also, you can follow the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity on Twitter. We do a lot of good work over there. I think you guys would enjoy it. Welcome back. Once again, this is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome uh, Travis Nix back to the show. Travis, we've had you on here before, but I'm sure some folks are meeting you for the first time. In addition to being a Young Voices contributor, what are some of the other hats that you are currently wearing? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me, Brian. Always happy to be on. Um, I'm just a tax law student at Georgetown Law. And um, yeah, so I did study a lot of taxes, which is what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, and this is a really timely article that I see the Wall Street Journal has published that you've written. And uh, the Supreme Court can restrain the IRS. Wow, you got my attention with that one, <laughs> Travis. I I did not uh, I did not feel especially reassured when I heard that there would be 87,000 new IRS agents. In fact, it kind of put a little hitch in my stomach because it felt like 
that's that's not aimed at going after you know drug lords or the super elite. It felt like that one was aimed directly at the middle class. Am I often thinking this? Uh, not necessarily, because the problem is when normal taxpayers get audited, it's a you're guilty until proven innocent. Taxpayers have the burden of proof and they have to show with documentation that their determination is correct. The IRS, they're presumed to be correct. So that makes it really difficult for average taxpayers who don't have all the documents, don't have all the seats, uh, receipts to defeat the IRS. And with that comes not only having to owe the tax that the IRS thinks you owe, sometimes that also comes with punitive penalties that makes it even hurt even worse for the average taxpayer. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's reason. Any, anybody who gets uh, an official letter or something in the mail from the IRS, I've yet to meet a single person who smiled upon receiving that. They're like, oh, <laughs> I got to see what this is going to lead to. Now, I have a perception, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but the IRS being an enforcement agency um, for the Department of the Treasury, sometimes it feels like there's a there's a pretty big separation between the taxpayers and this agency itself, which makes me wonder, how do we rein them in if, just, you know, for the sake of argument, they were to start getting heavy-handed or getting out of control? Tell me about, uh, about your take on uh, how the Supreme Court might be one method of bringing them back into their, their proper sphere. Yeah, so there's this whole, um, in the Eighth Amendment, there's a clause in the Eighth Amendment uh, against excessive government fines. So the government is not allowed to fine you excessively in a way that would destroy your livelihood or something like that. It's a foundational right that all Americans have. It dates all the way back to the Magna Carta and English Bill of Rights. And it really is, ne- it's never been enforced against the IRS. And it's really a new doctrine. It started developing in the 1990s for this clause in the Eighth Amendment to finally be enforced. And right now there's three cases pending for, uh, before the Supreme Court that if the Supreme Court chooses to hear it, could finally put an end to a lot of the most excessive government fines that the IRS imposes, as well as state revenue agencies as well, who are also very money and revenue hungry. Go ahead and walk us through a a synopsis of each one of those cases. I I hadn't heard anything about this, but now you've got my attention. Yeah, so two of them are at the state level, and then one again against the um, IRS. So the first or the first two are property tax schemes in Nebraska and Minnesota. So what Minnesota did is they um, confiscated a taxpayer's home for about $15,000 in unpaid tax, sold the entire home and kept all the revenue. So they sold the home for, I think it was like $70,000, kept the whole thing, even though the unpaid tax and fees were just $15,000, which is a clearly unconstitutional excessive fine the taxpayer lost his home and is paying multiples over of what he owes in taxes in these fines um the the um nebraska one is strange because what the government did in nebraska was it confiscated the taxpayer's home and just gave it to a private developer who could do what anything he wanted with it so that's obviously excessive because the home is worth a lot more than the unpaid tax that the guy had. He had completely paid off his home and just had it taken away from him for a couple thousand in unpaid property taxes. Then the one at the federal level against the IRS, it's a strange case. So 
there's foreign bank account reporting mechanisms. So if you have a foreign bank account that you either inherit or create, you have to disclose that to the IRS. And if you willfully do not disclose it, the IRS has the option. They can either find you $100,000 or take 50% of what is in that bank account. So in this case, it's called POP. Um, it's an elderly woman whose father had passed away. She did not disclose her father's foreign bank account to the IRS. Uh, unfortunately, did not hire an attorney to uh, walk her through the entire process and then was hit with um, the IRS is uh, trying to seize 50% of her father's, it's close to a $5 million bank account. So the IRS wow. is trying to impose, take $2.5 million of it. So these are all three cases pending before uh, the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court just chooses to hear one, I, I think they should hear all three. I think they should consolidate them and send a clear message that revenue agencies at the state and federal level level cannot be um, fining Americans excessively. And you can't have these this level of punitive penalties to enforce the tax code. Okay. Travis, tell me, I, I can't think of a single case that comes to mind about, uh, you know, uh, checking the power of the IRS. D- does the Supreme Court hear cases regarding the IRS often, or is this is this really rare? Um, the IRS actually um, is, they're appearing at the Supreme Court more and more. So there was a 2019 case, CIC Services, where the IRS lost 9 nothing. Um, the IRS has lost in the last decade nine nothing twice at the Supreme Court, and so um, the Supreme Court more and more is trying to rein them in because the IRS has operated separately from all the other federal agencies for basically the last fifty years. Uh, the IRS has had less restrictive rules than the other agencies had in promulgating regulations, passing re- regulations and rules. So the Supreme Court recently has been really trying to rein them in and saying that they have to follow all the other procedures that the EPA, Department of Commerce, all the other federal departments have to follow when creating rules. So I think it's possible that the Supreme Court could choose to hear these, case, these cases and rein in these revenue agencies once again. I mean, most of us look at the IRS and think, yeah, it'd probably be good to rein them in. But I, I have to admit, the other two cases you mentioned, where it's, it's states and their property tax statutes, that is that's a real concern too. Is is the Supreme has the Supreme Court had any cases before it in the last few years uh, regarding property taxes like this? Uh, not like this. Um, a similar case came up in two thousand five where they denied to hear the case. So this would be an opportunity for them to revisit that to rein in states. The excessive fines clause has only came up at the state context one time in 2019, where the Supreme Court ruled finally that the clause does apply to the states, just like the Second Amendment applies to the states, the Freedom of Speech Clause um, applies to the states. So it's really a new doctrine that the Supreme Court has really yet to weigh in in on, which is another reason they could take these cases. Well, given in this last, especially this last session, uh, the Supreme Court uh, really seemed to have quite a bit of momentum for uh, decisions that, that favored liberty, or at least that restricted government power. Is that likely to continue in, in the new session? Uh, I would think so. I mean, I think we're going to definitely see that in the affirmative action case, in the Harvard case. I think that's going to be a very clear 6-3 decision that would favor 
everyone having equal treatment when they apply to colleges. And then we just have to see what else, what other cases the Supreme Court um, hears. It's early on in the Supreme Court session. It just started yesterday and continuing today. So there's a lot of opportunities for the Supreme Court to um, hear some of these important cases that affect Americans and rule on the side of liberty. Yeah, just as you mentioned that, I'm oh, yeah, first Monday in October. That was yesterday. Wow, <laughs> here we are, Travis. Thank you so much for for being a guest again. We're talking with Travis Nix, who is a Young Voices contributor and also studying tax law at Georgetown University Law Center. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, the easiest way is follow me on Twitter at tnix n i x one thirteen. That's the easiest way to keep in contact with me and see what I'm up to. Okay, I'm looking forward to some follow-up on this and hopefully some good news. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Benjamin Ayanian back to the program. Ben, you are a Young Voices contributor, and you have uh, you have a few other things that you like to do uh, when you have a spare moment. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, me, generally speaking, um, I love to hang out with friends and family and watch football in the fall time. Um, but I'm also a fellow at the Mercatus Center, um, which is a free market think tank at George Mason. I also intern at a venture capital fund right now. Um, I just graduated recently, so that's kind of what I've what I've been up to lately. Nice. Well, congratulations on your graduation. And I'm looking at an article that you wrote for uh, Inside Sources. Um, about uh, it's time to take third parties seriously. And I got to tell you, I have some serious fatigue with the uh, duopoly <laughs> Republican Democrat. <laughs> it, it seems like um, it seems like no matter who's in power, we, we never really seem to get back to a smaller government, more responsive government, less of a you know footprint on our paycheck and so forth. Talk to me about uh, about what set this this column in motion. Yeah, so there was an interview on CNN between Jim Acosta and Andrew Yang, who actually just started um, a new party called the Forward Party. And my column had nothing to do with advocating for the Forward Party itself. Um, in fact, you know, their presumed policy platform, um, it's not out yet, but based on their, their, their ideas so far, talking about wanting to hold the positions of the majority, the common sense majority is what they, they call it. Um, that's probably not going to attract me very much, you know, especially on things like gun rights. I'm not in the majority. I'm at very pro Second Amendment and very against most restrictions. And so um, but I think what I witnessed in that interview was Jim Acosta espousing ideas that I see far too often um, discussing with friends and colleagues and just just trying to pin on Andrew Yang that his new party will only serve to elect, spoiler alert, Donald Trump or a Republican because Jim Acosta is, you know, a hardcore lefty. You know, he wants he's only worried about a Republican possibly benefiting from a third party candidate. Um, and so once I saw that, I was like, OK, this this 
thought process is really prevalent out there right now and, and it inspired me to write this piece. You know, and I hear the same kind of complaints or claims from uh, from the right side of the aisle, you know, where, well, if you vote for a third party, you're only just paving the way for, for Hillary to get in or whatever. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about third parties. And, and I know they kind of are a hiss and a byword. Oh, well, they're just there to spoil it. But are there any viable third parties that uh, could challenge the, the essentially uniparty that we currently have? Yeah, so it depends on, I guess, what you're looking for out of a third party. And the parties that are out there right now, I don't think that they are in a position to contend for elections, you know, anytime in the immediate future. I'm more attracted to the ideals of the Libertarian Party. Um, Their messaging, though, has certainly changed uh, recently. Their Twitter, if you guys follow the Libertarian Party on Twitter, you know that their messaging has changed a lot. And so, we'll see how well that's digested um but the forward party seems more like a like a market good it's like trying to find a gap in the market um it seems since it's a mix of former republican um politicians and andrew yang who ran for president as a democrat it seems that you know they're going to probably hold positions that the party leadership doesn't fully agree with themselves. Their whole point is, you know, we're super polarized. The middle, you know, third of the country is kind of left out of the conversation. We're going to create a party where um, we're going to represent that middle third. All of our policy positions are going to be what the majority believe. And while I disagree with that, I think maybe from a from a business, you know, if you look at it as a business in the sense of there's a market need, um, they're trying to fill it. And I think it could work depending on how their messaging um, goes. Again, I won't find myself as a supporter of it unless I can get my small government pro-liberty views to become the majority, because then they would have to adopt those positions based off of what they're saying right now. Um, but so it, it really comes down, in my opinion, to just giving third parties a real chance and actually listening to what they have to say. You don't have to vote for any of them, but the more we disregard them and view them as only means to destroy the other party's chances in election, I think the worst off we're all going to be because the two sides, the Democrats and Republicans right now, they don't have to speak to all of us. Uh, They only have to speak to really more extreme individuals so that they can drive out their vote because they can assume everyone who leans their direction will vote for them anyway because the only other option is repulsive to them. And I don't know if the Democrats do this so much. I, I'm very familiar with this in the Republican Party, though. There's a lot of talk every election. Well, sometimes you got to hold your nose and just vote for you know who, whoever has the chance of winning. And it would be really nice to have an alternative to holding one's nose before they vote, whether whether it's on the left or on the right. Is there common ground where those two sides can come together with without uh, it just becoming a, you know, cage match? Yeah, the, I mean, the question becomes it's really complicated for a multitude of reasons. There's plenty of restrictions on third parties um, and their access to debate stages and ballots. Um, and so then if it comes so I think they, the unfortunately, the Republicans and Democrats almost need to come together to get rid of those restrictions when they don't really have much interest in doing that. Um, so that is a bit of an issue off the bat. But the Republicans and Democrats, you hope, could at least move back towards uh, the center a little bit and find some sort of common ground. But the issue is they're not searching for it because it doesn't benefit them. Um, it doesn't 
um, lead to them being able to sustain power over periods of time. And so it's really up to us voters, I think, to force them to do that is kind of what I'm getting at. Their Republicans and Democrats aren't going to all of a sudden stop the inflammatory rhetoric, stop twisting facts to rile up their bases. Like it has to come from us voters at this point. Um, there are possible election structure changes that could be made to to make this better that are being experimented with in different places like ranked choice voting i don't have an opinion on it i haven't looked into it enough um, but i do think a substantial part of this is us is us as voters forcing the two parties to come together because we just withhold from them or we you know give an actual look what's over here on the left what's over here on the right um but until we do that, they're going to feel entitled to our votes and um, not moderate themselves. I think it was uh, historian Thomas Woods who, who made the comment of, uh, no matter who you vote for, you get John uh, McCain. <laughs> I know that may sound cynical to some people, but uh, really, within within the um, the mainstream Democrat and Republican parties, it really seems like the, the effort is to protect the status quo. Even if we don't carry the day this time, by the other side carrying the day, we're still relevant because we're part of that status quo. And and I, that's what I want to see shift. How deep is the support in the voting public right now in terms of dissatisfaction or uh, desire to see this change? Yeah, so the desire to see the change is strong at at least on paper, uh, 74% of the country, at this at the time that I wrote the article, 74% of the country said that we were moving in the wrong direction as a nation. Joe Biden only had a 42% approval rate and 62% of voters said a third party is needed and a plurality of Americans identify as independents these days. Um, they do not, like I think it's over 40% of individuals do not identify as Republican or Democrat. Um, and so there's definitely an appetite for this, but whether or not it's gonna come to people giving actual looks to these other parties, reading their platforms, following their their you know policy leaders and donating, campaigning, and then writing in their names on a ballot or voting, checking a box for them. I don't know how close we are to actually seeing that because we're seeing right now, both on the left and the right, every election is the most consequential in history. Joy <laughs> Reid over at MSNBC wrote an article saying as much um, about the midterms. And then Republicans yell about socialism every time a um, an election's coming around, when at the same time, they don't really cut spending too much. And they also... Um, subsidize certain industries, you know, they engage in plenty of government planning. And so I, I think that we need to really tune them out when they say, oh, this is the most consequential election ever, because they say that every time. And four years later, we wake up, we're unhappy, but we're still alive. Um, and so I think that it's time to uh, to try and find something we actually support. Ben, we got about 30 seconds here. Is it going to have to start at the, the lower local and state races rather than higher up the uh, electoral food chain? I think that that is definitely true. You're going to be able to find individuals that can come together and vote for third parties more readily at local um, election levels. And so I think that's where it's going to have to start. And it starts with us to ch changing our mindset. OK, well, you've convinced me. 
I'm wherever that bandwagon is. I'm I'm ready to hop aboard. Uh, again, we're talking with Benjamin Ayanian. He is a Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, follow me at Twitter, um, on Twitter rather, at Benjamin Ayanian. That's the best place to follow me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. I am happy to welcome Theo Berman back to the program. Theo is in London, and Theo, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so my name's Theo. I do a lot of writing about uh, American politics kind of from a, a British perspective and kind of the perspective across the pond. Uh, but I also obviously commentate on UK politics as well and wider European stuff, uh, which is probably what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the article uh, that you wrote for 1828.org.uk about uh, the new Italian prime minister, newly elected Italian prime minister, Giorgia Maloney. And I have to say, I have I've seen some, uh, you know, sour lemon type reactions to, well, that candidate won that we didn't want to win. But that's the first time I think I've ever seen a candidate compared to, well, she's the most right-wing uh, prime minister elected since uh, Mussolini. That tells me she must, uh, she must pose a little bit of a shake-up threat to, to the powers that be. What's, what's the story behind her election, and what kind of a signal does it send as far as uh, where people's politics are leaning these days? Well, I'd say the the overarching narrative of, of her election is definitely one of um, kind of rejecting the status quo. Uh, Italy's been uh, you know, politically, you know, quite an unstable position for for a while now, and Georgia Maloney represents one of the first kind of coherent uh, takes that the Italian people have had for a bit. Um, but she's all about the rejection of. Uh, the European project and also taking control of Italy's borders, particularly on stuff like immigration. That's kind of one of the big key uh, parts. And she's managed to construct a, po- a coalition of about uh, half of the vote uh, with several other uh, or two other um, parties on the right, um, which, again, creates a very cohesive uh, rejection of what the European Union has been trying to push for recently. And it definitely echoes back to rising Euroscepticism um, over the last couple of years. Uh, but I guess the, the most obvious example for me to say is, is the Brexit referendum. Mm-hmm. Actually, Theo, I, got, I have to compliment you for introducing me to the, to the term uh, Euroscepticism. I had not heard that before, but uh, for someone hearing it for the first time, can you flesh that out just a little bit for us? What does it mean when we say that someone is a Euroskeptic? Yeah, so Euroscepticism is, um, in this day and age, is basically a rejection of the European Union and what it stands for. Uh, there is what we refer to as the European project, which is this idea that in the, the post-war consensus and in a modern world, we want to be economically and culturally very close with all of the nations in Europe. And that was um, quite a strong coalition for a very, very long time. However, in the, uh, I mean, obviously it's kind of cropped up everywhere. Um, in, in the kind of grassroots. But for me, the, the clearest example has been the Conservative Party in Britain, uh, which has been debating uh, whether or not that 
we should be a member of the European Union for for decades now. Uh, it's been a real turning point, and in 2016, that culminated with the Brexit referendum when the UK decided to leave the EU, uh, which has represented uh, a bit of a calling cry, I think, a rallying shout for other nations who were considering, you know, dipping their toes into Euroscepticism. Uh, but didn't really have a, a blueprint to follow. And now there is something like that, which is why I think Italy has leaned towards it. So in a nutshell, it is uh, being sceptical, being, um, you know, trying to reject what the U- European Union stands for. I thought it was very interesting, too, that uh, uh, an official from the European Union issued kind of a, a threat or a warning anyway to don't you dare elect you know a government that, that isn't compatible with what we in the EU would like um, what's the story behind it? has that happened before have they have they exerted that kind of influence yeah it's uh, the EU has a, a bad habit of kind of overstepping the mark in terms of how they uh, interact with individual member states and the the current uh, leader of the European Union, uh, van der Leyen, has only been in the position for, uh, I think, one or two years. So she is fairly new to it, considering how long some other of the main kind of European leaders have been. But it's still um, a kind of a, a, a pattern that you see where the EU will uh, take a very ham-fisted approach to how the individual countries will settle uh, their own uh, internal politics. The same thing happened with the Brexit referendum again. We saw a few, quite a few members, prominent members of the European Parliament saying, you know, there will be prices to pay if Britain decides to leave. And I think it, you know, that's wrong for several reasons, just purely from a strategic point of view. You know, people don't really like being told what to do, especially by someone who, you know, is a representative of a country that isn't theirs. And that can, you know, lead to a lot of uh, spite based politics, which is obviously, I think, a, a really bad thing. So, the EU can can doesn't really make life easy for itself when it makes these kinds of uh, interventions. Well, and, and this election in Italy isn't exactly a one-off in terms of uh, countries choosing to go uh, a different uh, direction. For instance, uh, Hungary and Poland apparently have, have done that. I knew about Viktor Orban in Hungary. I wasn't aware about Poland. What was the story there? So um, the story in Poland... Uh, it was quite there's a really interesting one. I think uh, just let me get this up. Um, once again, I think we saw like uh, uh, an interventionist perspective from the European Union where they would try and use uh, like economic uh, power and kind of like soft pressure to try and control what they're going to do um, with their internal laws. And there was you know some concerns with uh, their access to the euro and that kind of thing. Um, which meant that basically the uh, representative from Poland felt very uh, trapped in the way that the European Union was was handling their internal politics. Now, I know that uh, to some people, nationalism has, has a kind of negative connotation. Um, I'm a little bit undecided. I, I think it's I think it can be taken to extremes, but I don't think in and of itself it's necessarily, you know, a, a bad thing. Is is that sense of nationalism growing in countries besides Italy, Poland, Hungary? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely on the rise. I mean, I don't have my, my boots on the ground there, but the, the general impression I get is that there is a uh, kind of reaction uh, to the European project that is is deeply rooted in in nationalism. I think when there's a project that is so based around homogeneity of of you know countries that are at their core you know very different and each have their distinct histories and cultures, 
there is a tendency for that to overstep its mark and then people engage in nationalism uh, as a response. I think you could also maybe tie this to what's going on in, in Russia at the moment. Ukrainians have, have responded to uh, the Russian invasion and the kind of um, troubles with their identity by engaging in you know quite prominent nationalism and that has aided their their war effort but it's also led to you know several problems internally so there's definitely a line to be drawn but ultimately i think mm -hmm. it is a response to the prevailing narrative over the past few few decades uh, which is why it's on the rise currently. Many years ago, when I was studying political science, I remember uh, hearing a, a term called, I think it was the revolutionary gap. And that was when people's expectations uh, versus what they actually are, are experiencing uh, be, grow too wide. And that's, that's when things tend to get uh, dicey and change. Sometimes revolutionary change comes. Looking at some of the difficulties that uh, Europe is facing right now in the broadest sense, you know, energy wise and and in, in, in terms of the cost of, of uh, energy, is it likely that we are going to see uh, more countries starting to take a little more nationalistic feel and a little more of a defiant uh, attitude toward Brussels? It, it's difficult to say. Obviously, the, the core of, you know, France, Germany, they're always going to stay there. The EU is, is a big part of that. And especially for trade, you know, it's one of the largest and uh, most successful um, economic blocks in, in the world. And a lot of countries want in on that. And, you know, there's a, the, the price of entry, as it were, which is to, you know, clamp down on, on the nationalism slightly. But I think while there is still a, a, a war going on in Europe, and as long as these politicians continue to get electoral successes, we are going to see a bit more nationalism in Europe. And if Italy, you know, manages to hold it together, hold it together for a bit longer than they have previously, then it's going to be a, a again, a, a pretty good rallying shout for any other nationalists across the EU. Well, I, I like the way that you, you lay out the uh the, the way that things have shaken out here in the in in this latest election but I also like that you have the wisdom to say we have to wait and see <laughs> nothing is nothing is set in stone at this point is it no absolutely not and there's there's you know so many elections on the horizon and, and things are seem to be going uh, a bit chaotic in here of Britain as, as we speak so there's definitely all to play for. And uh, yeah, who can say? We'll definitely have to wait and see. Okay, we've got about 30 seconds left here. Are there any other European nations that we should be keeping an eye on who have uh, similar elections coming up that, that could be transformative? Yeah, definitely. So you need to keep an eye on, as we said, Hungary and Poland. Uh, there's really stuff going on here. I'd also say maybe keep an eye on Germany. They've just had a massive turnover of power. Angela Merkel has been an incredibly dominant force in European politics for decades. And as she stepped down at the last German election, the, you know, there's a bit of a power vacuum. And I don't think they'll they'll leave the European Union, but I think their attitude might definitely change. They're, they're one to keep an eye on. All right. We are talking with Theo Berman. He is a uh, journalist and political commentator with Young Voices UK. Uh, Theo, where can people find you on social media? Yes, yeah, so I'm most active on Twitter, and you can find me there at Theo underscore Berman. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at Theo underscore G underscore Berman.